Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. Can y'all believe that Saturday is Christmas Eve? Anybody else that kind of jars you a little bit? Like, woo. I mean, for me, that's still like five more shopping days, so we're good. I can start <laughs> Thursday, I think. Anybody else in that boat? No one will admit it. Yeah, I know you're out there. I know you're out there. Well, hey, um, uh, Christmas Eve, uh, we mentioned it before. Um, and it's really such a special uh, and incredible time to come together and, like, worship, which is so interesting because, um, and this is not the sermon yet, but it's just kind of my, my prequel here. Um, we, we uh, I was with some other pastors, and we kind of noticed, like, hey, it's kind of odd, so um, not sure what the change is. Like, we get it when some people that don't follow Jesus go, yeah, Christmas, whatever. Like, there's not necessarily a reason that they would come to church, unless somebody invites them, but... Um, but then it was, we were noticing, like, especially some of the pastors I was talking with, like, like there's some people that are like, no, no, we don't come to church Christmas or Christmas Eve. We spend that time with family. And we're just kind of slack-jawed. One of us, we, we were listening to this one pastor talk about it, and, and, and he was kind of getting some pushback from some of his people, just really encouraging them to come and bring folks. And we were kind of, like, looking at him going, hey, dude, like, wait, did you, like, seriously, did you tell him, like, this is the best time to come together and celebrate, like make worshiping and coming together on, like make it a part, like an important part of your Christmas or Christmas Eve celebration, like bring the family. Yeah, you're getting together with family. Awesome. Bring the whole family. I mean, I mean, it's, it's Jesus' birthday, you know, for, for Christ's sake. Um, <laughs> we told him probably don't try that last line, but yeah. But I'm glad to be a part of a church family here that makes Christmas Eve services a priority, uh, and it makes a priority, we make it a priority to bring folks with us, um, and by the way, like, we have way more chairs we're going to put out, so don't worry, there's plenty of space for all y'all to bring somebody, and I want to encourage you to, if you haven't decided already, to, number one, make Christmas worship, making coming together for Christmas Eve, like, a part of your family tradition, like bring them all, bring them all, we'll, we'll figure it out and get them in, right? Uh, so number one, that. And then number two, to remember that Christmas Eve um, is a time when people that don't normally, you know, come to church, it's a time where they might be way more open to an invitation. We've mentioned this the last few weeks, like use the flyers that Brittany created, invite folks, um, and, and um, it's really great if you go, hey, um, come and I'll save you a seat. That, that'll, some people, that'll kind of remove some of their nervousness. So, um, yeah, I encourage you to do that. One more thing on that. Um, we really see ourselves kind of as this neighborhood church, um, and there's a lot of people in our neighborhoods around us here that, that don't have a church they go to. So a couple few times a year, um, the staff and maybe a couple other folks, we go, we spend one hour, we split up, go two by two, and we flyer the houses, just put them on people's doors, and invite them to Christmas Eve service. So Tuesday, this Tuesday, 9 a.m., if you want to join us and help out with the staff, just one hour, we, we go out, we hit it hard, uh, we invite the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of that, give us a shout here to know to expect you, and, um, and we would love to have some help with that as well. Okay, <clears throat> here we go. Now, for the message, after I drink my water. So, if you've been with us last, this is the fourth Sunday here, where we've been in a series of messages that we are calling Rediscover Christmas, and we've looked at some different characters in the Christmas story, um, and we're going to get to an interesting 
uh, character to learn a little bit more about. But first, before we get into that, can you guys indulge me, you know, a grandparent story? Is that okay? Anyone? Okay, like three of you are okay with this. And I'm going to do it anyway. So, um, so, so Heidi and I, we have two grandsons, uh, age two and age four. Uh, Elliot is the older one. Arlo's the two-year-old. And I was the younger sibling, so you know, I don't understand all the angst that older siblings get toward their, toward their little, you know, little brothers. Um, I mean, we're just trying to help. We're just trying to love you, okay? Okay, we're still needing therapy on that one. But um, um, our two-year-old, four-year-old, sometimes they play together and have a blast. And then sometimes, shocker, um, especially the older one, Elliot, he just gets sick of the two-year-old touching his stuff, moving his things, you know, playing with what he wants to play with. And so, Elliot asks for, what does he call it, honey? He's, I want some space. That's his cue. I want, I need space. I need space. So, genius uh, wife of mine, Heidi, Gigi to the boys, she came up with space. <laughs> now, at first glance, you might think, oh, that's where you throw the two-year-old when he's misbehaving, because it looks a little bit like a prison, right? <laughs> but you'd be wrong, like I was wrong. Um, this is where Elliot goes to get his space. He can get in there, his own little kingdom. He can bring the Legos that the two-year-old's too little to play with. He can bring the trucks and toys that he doesn't want to share. And he can go into his little, I mean, space. He goes into his space and has a blast. And there's some good things about it, right? There's an upside to having his space. Um, he gets to be, you know, in control, which he believes will then give him joy. I don't know about that, but when they're not fighting, we feel joy. So <laughs> this is good. Um, he gets to be all there. You know, he gets to be the king of his little kingdom. He gets to be in charge of what's going on. Uh, his little brother's not messing up his stuff. And all that's good, right? But that's the upside. The downside, and I thought of three things off the top of my head, of the downside of this little deal here is that this is a very small kingdom, Right? And it kind of looks a little more like a jail. Um, so that's number one. Number two, um, it's actually an illusion because he's not really in control. He's not really in charge. Um, and then the third thing is that after a little while of staying in his little kingdom there, he gets lonely. <clears throat> and then he comes out and he interacts with the rest of us because, you know, he, he, he gets it. But so there's upsides, there's downsides, and when I see him do this, sometimes I kind of smile because I go, you know, we all kind of deal with that, like, I need my space, I need my own little kingdom, right? Um, we all deal with that in different ways. Hopefully, in your house, you don't jump into a little kid prison, but, you know, no judgment here. Um, but when we're afraid, when we're anxious, when we're irritated, um, sometimes we tend to think that 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 what we need to do in that situation is exercise some power, which will give us control, which then we believe will give us fulfillment and maybe even some joy. You know, it's easy for us to think, you know, if I can just be in charge, if I were just, you know, if I were king, I could sit on the throne of my little universe and manipulate people and things to turn out the way I want with nobody messing with my kingdom, then I would feel joy, wouldn't I? And um, as the Christmas song says about Joy, um, joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her, have you guys not really heard this song? Let earth receive her king, Whew, okay, it's got me worried. So the bad news is, there is a king, 
and he isn't you. (laughs) And the good news is, together now, there is a king, and he isn't you. It's good news and bad news, and I think... I believe here that, 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 that the posture that we operate from determines whether or not we see the truth that, that there is king and he ain't me. We see that as good news or bad news when it comes to the throne of our life. We see it as good news or bad news depending on the posture that we have. And there's two characters in the Christmas story that really, I think, illustrate that so well, whether it's good news or bad news. Um, they discover, you know, the Messiah is coming or has been born. And so I want to contrast those two characters in the Christmas story. And I want to start, and we won't spend much time on Mary, but I want to start with Mary's posture. When she hears the good news that the king is coming, the king is going to be born, she says in, um, I think it's actually, is it Matthew 1? I might have put the wrong one up, but Matthew 1, there we go. Um, an angel shows up, and I'll summarize here. There's just shocking news that the angel delivers to this Teenage, unwed virgin named Mary surprises and shocks her, essentially saying, you will give birth to a son who is the son of God, and you are to call him Jesus, and he will be the king of a kingdom that will never end. And her response in verse 38, Mary said, behold, I believe this is in Luke, actually, behold, I am the servant of the Lord Let it be to me according to your word. Another translation says, let it be done unto me. She sees this as good news, right? Her posture is, yes, Lord. Yes, right away. Or she's just kind of answer automatically. Yes, Lord, what's the question? (laughs) Yes, Lord. It's her automatic default posture. Be it done to me. No matter what you ask, God, I'm all in. I say yes to you, seeing it as good news, trusting God that way. That's Mary. That's her posture. And then the other character who we'll look at and spend most of our time on today is a guy named King Herod. He would be about the polar opposite of teenage Mary in every single way. In fact, in keeping with this week's Advent theme, while Mary was filled with joy at this news, seeing it as good news, A look at Herod's life would not just in this episode, but everywhere, be seen as the opposite of joy, misery. It's bad news to Herod if anybody else was going to be king. um, Because the posture, the impulse of Herod is acquiring power, which he believes will give him control, which he then believes will give him joy. Thank you, Brandon, for that summary. Uh, Great stuff right there. Posture and impulse of Herod. Acquiring power, which he believes will give him control, which he believes will give him joy. And isn't that actually, if we're honest, true in some ways of all of us? We think if we acquire power or dominance or control over others or a situation, then life's going to be great. And when life is great, then I'll experience joy that will be breaking forth because I am the king. I am on the throne. But that's a Herod-like posture. And on the other hand, Mary has this posture of of surrender. And she's showing us that trusting God's pathway over her own designs, she trusts ultimately that that will lead to joy because Jesus is the king. So that's good news instead of this miserable character that Herod is. um, Because Herod wanted so badly to be king and have a legacy, to stay in power, have this dynasty behind him. He thought that's what's going to give him joy, but he was the opposite of joyful. 
miserable. He was miserable. And Andy Stanley says, I believe that for most of us, there is the danger of a little Herod rising up in all of us. See, um, Herod's life was one giant self-promotion project. His whole life, his whole life was built on Preserve, protect, and control. Preserve, protect, and control. That's his cycle. Preserve, protect, and control. And so he's not about to bow his knee to anyone or see good news of another king as good news. And so for the rest of this message, I want to look at King Herod. And we're going to look at some stories about his life, his response to the news of King Jesus. And what we'll see today is that Herod's life of building and trying to control outcomes uh, again, leads not to joy, but the opposite, leads to a life of misery. Now, a little bit about who Herod is, um, because, and we'll look into the history books for some of this before we get to what we find in the text. Um, but King Herod, he was the client king, so kind of really a puppet king, uh, to the land of Judea, which meant that Rome, the Roman Empire, they would just pluck out people and go, all right, so you are going to be the king over this area and rule them for us, but you answer to us. So he's the king of this area, but, but he's not even fully Jewish, nor is he from that kingly line of David. <laughs> he uh, is not at all someone who should have been a king in that area, and so that drove all the Jewish people crazy. Um, and so, again, he was the king before Jesus was born up until Jesus' birth. And Herod, um, just, you know, he was, he's known as very smart, very talented, very politically astute, and he was ambitious. In fact, in that day, back then, he was known as a builder um, because he rebuilt the Jewish temple. He built port cities. He you know, was one of the first to build aqueducts in that area. He built all kinds of things, and I kind of want to call him Herod the Builder, but that might tarnish, you know, Bob the Builder. Anybody remember? <laughs> Can we fix it? Bob the Builder. Oh, see, it sticks in you. It's been 20 years since Noah was that age, and it, I know every word. It's, it's terrible. Yeah, sticks in there. Where were we? Okay, so not Bob, um, but Herod the Builder. Um, yeah, he was extremely talented, but, 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 but his ambition got the best of him in the end. And that's where this danger is, where there's a little bit of Herod that can rise up in all of us because he was full of pride, and we are prone to that too. And so pride makes us blind. But, by the way, humility, like Mary had, humility uh, is a rescue to us. So, um, Herod, mentioned in the Christmas story, Matthew 2 and Luke 1. But I want to tell you before we get to that about what we know about of Herod from the history books to give us a better sketch of this character. And to do that, we need to go back before him and kind of outside and above him to this history of the Roman Empire. Uh, and we're going to look about 40-ish so years before Jesus is born, so before the birth of Christ. And we're going to start by looking at this character you may have heard of, Julius Caesar, Julius Caesar. You remember in college or high school when you studied maybe the Julius Caesar stuff, right? The inventor of the salad, that guy. Just, uh, um, just kidding. I had to tell the high school students, don't write that as an answer on your test, no. Um, but the Roman Empire uh, rose around this time, got even more solidified in how it was run. And about 44 years before the birth of Christ, Julius Caesar had named himself dictator over uh, all of Rome, but that didn't set so well with some of the other politicians and leaders of Rome, and so he gets ambushed in the Senate, 
Um, anybody remember that whole story that Shakespeare wrote a play about this, him being ambushed and killed by the Senate? Um, anybody remember the name of that play? It's very creative. Julius Caesar. Yes, that's, that's yeah. Um, <clears throat> very original title. But when Julius Caesar gets uh, killed, um, his nephew, who was also his adopted son, his nephew adopted son, we'll put some names up here for you, his that guy is Octavius, who, by the way, eventually would become Caesar Augustus. Anybody remember that name from a census in the Christmas story? Yeah, yeah. So um, Octavius, and then another guy, Mark Antony, who was also related to Julius Caesar, they decide that they are going to gather some troops and avenge the death of Julius Caesar. So these two guys go out, and they destroy everybody that were... In, in on that murder uh, and responsible for the death of Julius. But then, problem is, once those enemies were all killed off by Anthony and Octavius, suddenly these two guys are the most powerful leaders left. So instead of that guy and that guy, because that guy versus the other guy, um, and so predictably, um, then after that, they had conflict now. They turned against each other because ultimately there's only room for one top dog to rule Rome, right? right? They each want power and control. Nobody's going to let the other one be king over them. So instead of being partners, now they are rivals. And by the way, things got even more complicated that intensified that rivalry because Mark Antony was related, uh, was, I'm sorry, married to, to Octavius's sister, but Mark Antony was having an affair with a well-known woman from Egypt who bore three of his children. Anybody remember from history class who that famous woman was? Antony and Cleopatra. Don't worry, that's not on the Bible. It's not on the test. You're good. Um, but so here we are. Octavius and Antony, these are rivals. They're fighting for power, fighting for allegiance. So they're trying to gather different Roman generals and politicians to their side. And this is where Herod comes into the picture. So King Herod had befriended Antony and Cleopatra. But the problem was the Roman citizens, they detested. They could not stand Cleopatra. First of all, she was Egyptian. Um, and then there was that affair thing. And then they were all, the Romans were afraid that she was going to try to, you know, make Egypt great again and diminish Rome. And then she would become the queen over all the Roman Empire as an Egyptian. So the Romans were not fans of uh, Cleopatra. But King Herod... He was a fan, at least of Mark Antony, but also somewhat Cleopatra. And so he would host them for big parties. He would send them lavish gifts. And then, eventually, Mark Antony and Octavius, they, they're going to battle. They're going to have it out here. And so there's this face-off that happens. And when the rebellion arises, there's this civil war between the two of them. And Herod has to pick a side. And unfortunately for this civil war, Herod... Bet on the wrong horse because Mark Antony and his legions of troops, they were almost immediately defeated. And so, um, so they hightail it, you know, Mark Antony and Cleopatra, they hightail it back to Egypt. And they do what you do when you lose a civil war or rebellion. They killed themselves. Uh, and then within a very short time, Octavius becomes Caesar Augustus, the very first emperor of Rome. Okay, so, so far we're clear, right? Now, Herod again, now he goes, oh no, I backed the wrong person. 
And back in that day, especially in a civil type of rebellion, civil war kind of deal, if you were on the losing side of a civil war, you had generally three options. You could just go ahead and kill yourself and get it over with like Antony and Cleopatra did. That'd be one. Number two, you could run, but they'll find you. Rome will find you. Or number three, you try to just get real quiet, real small, and hope that Rome ignores you, right? Well, Herod, that's not going to work with how he's done his life because his whole life has been constructed around um, protect, preserve, and control. Protect, preserve, and control. And so he did something that's kind of shocking, almost unbelievable. He gets on a boat, sails a ship all the way directly to where he knew Octavius, now Caesar Augustus, to where Caesar Augustus was. He shows up and he asks to speak to the empire, the emperor of the Roman Empire, the emperor, the most powerful person in the world. He shows up. And can you imagine like the people that, that he went up to and got there and introduced himself, they had to be like, dude, you are an enemy of Rome. You've got a death sentence on you. What are you doing showing up here? But they let him in. And then Herod goes and makes this amazing speech in front of Caesar Augustus and everyone there. And essentially Herod says something like this in his speech. As you know, Caesar Augustus, I was a friend to your enemy, Mark Antony. And as you know, I was a loyal supporter of his from the very beginning through that civil war and all the way to the end. And here's something important for you to know about me, Augustus. When I pledge my loyalty to someone, I am loyal to them to the end. And oh, great Caesar, I now pledge my loyalty to you. Not bad, right? Some of you are like, I got a teenager that probably, yeah. Um, not bad at all right there. Pretty good. And in fact, Caesar Augustus was so impressed uh, and amazed by his, I guess we'll call it courage, he didn't kill Herod. He actually allowed Herod to remain king, and not just king now of Judea, but he also gave him Samaria, Jericho, and Gaza as well, and then sends him back to rule over even more areas. So that's just part of who King Herod is, right? He's, he's cunning, he's extremely ambitious, he's politically savvy, but, but, but what got him into trouble was that he was so committed to his own control and so committed to establishing his own legacy to, to preserve and protect and control that he frequently made harsh, uh, impulsive, paranoid, bad decisions over and over and over. He was so committed to controlling his kingdom and legacy, he had ten wives to make sure he was born plenty of sons, um, and he had a bunch of sons that were uh, his heirs, and he'd know who was next in line, but then he would get so paranoid about that son um, going to overthrow him, he'd be so paranoid that every few years he would change his will, and instead of that son being the heir, he would change it to somebody else. Oh, and when he did that, um, he would kill the son that was supposed to be the heir, and then name a different heir. He did this four times. It was kind of like he was like, all right, uh, you're gone. All right, uh, you, you're the next king. You know, and if you're one of Herod's sons, you're probably like, hey, no, that's cool, Dad. I'm, I'm good. I don't want to be king. It's all good. No problem. Um, Augustus said about Herod that it was safer to be Herod's pig 
than it was to be Herod's son. Like he killed, he killed one of his wives, he killed, and he actually was said to have loved that wife, but his paranoid uh, personality, his paranoia just got away from him. He was so brutal. He murdered so many rabbis, religious teachers in, in, in Judea that the rabbis did not want to go anywhere near Jerusalem because when King Herod got mad, he would do anything to maintain control of his kingdom, to establish his legacy, to prove he was in charge, to preserve, to protect, to control. And that's a little bit about Herod that we know from the history books. That's the kind of guy we're dealing with when we meet him uh, in Matthew chapter Two, And when we get to this Bible story here where Jesus is born, at this point in his life, Herod, King Herod, he's about, they think, 70 years old, and he has this painful kidney disease. So he's old, he's miserable, he's very sick, everybody's deathly afraid of him, so I don't imagine that his social or family life is at all pleasant. And at this age of 70, he, he's dying, but he still wants to make sure that his name will live on with the sons who are going to be the next rulers when he's gone. And that's when he hears the most disturbing news imaginable. He hears the news that five miles south of him, there's a new king from the actual royal line of David. And that that little king is a toddler right now. He hears a toddler is the king. Matthew writes in chapter 2, verse 1, after Jesus was born... In Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, the Magi, and we call them the wise men, they came from the east to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him, right? I mean, just picture this happening here. Like, like these, these foreigners show up uh, with a huge entourage. Um, they are wealthy. It's about a year, year and a half, maybe two years after Jesus was born. And they go to Jerusalem because that's where the king would have to be, right? They're wandering around the city of Jerusalem. They're like, hey, hey, everybody. Hey, everybody, where? Where has the one who has been born king of the Jews? Where is he? We've come to worship. And people hear this and they're like, dudes, shh, quiet down. Herod's going to kill you if he hears you talking about this. And I'm standing over here. I might get killed too, right? Because Herod was, it says, disturbed. And so we understand why the whole city was disturbed with him. Because when Herod was disturbed, it was dangerous. There's no telling what Herod might do when his kingdom and control of his kingdom is at risk. And so... I'll summarize the passage. Uh, next slide here. Herod calls all the religious people who know the stuff, right? He calls, and if you're all these religious scholars and teachers and Herod summons, summons you, it's terrifying because Herod would often just randomly kill people or groups of people just to prove that he was the king and in control. And he gets them all together, but he asks them, uh, where, where was it that the prophets said the Messiah would be born? Well, everybody knows the answer to that. They could have asked the servant out in the hallway if he was Jewish, who everybody knew, right? Bethlehem. Bethlehem's the answer to that. And so um, Herod gets the Magi. He gets them all back together, and he tells them, go to Bethlehem, find the child. And he says, so that I too may go and worship him, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, Next slide here. So they went. 
And summarizing it here, the star reappears and it leads them to the home where they find Jesus and his mother Mary. And then get this, try to picture these dignitaries, these rulers, kings, these wealthy, powerful people. It says right here that they bowed down and worshipped him. Now, just a second here, the, 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 the word worship here in a lot of modern church contexts, we think of worship as, you know, singing. Um, but as you hear us frequently mention from time to time, at least here at Hope, worship is not just singing, right? Worship is something we do with our whole life, all of our actions. It's recognizing that we are in the presence of the one who is king over everything, and then we respond in reverence to who they are to who God is. That's what worship is. It's a lifestyle. It's not just singing. It is singing, but it's not just that. So they worship these, these, these guys. They're like these wealthy, influential leaders. They had traveled a long, long way, many months. They finally get there. Here's the king, and they find themselves in the presence of a two-year-old toddler living in poverty. They don't even know what we know later, but they were still so convinced about who Jesus is that they, right there, drop to their knees, they bow, they worship Jesus. I just, it's mind-blowing to me. All right, now imagine while they're doing that, in the meantime, I'm guessing here that Herod He's probably freaking out. He's back at his palace. He's just waiting to hear from the Magi where this baby king is so he can go kill the baby king because he is so worried about controlling everything. Again, his whole life has been built around preserve, protect, and control. Preserve, protect, and control. Preserve, protect, and control. And even at the end, while he's sick, I picture him fist clenched. He's racked with pain, but he is not about... He's not about to bow. He's not going to bow his knee. He's not going to worship anyone, not even the God of the universe. And again, it can be real easy to kind of pick on Herod. But if we pause and get real honest, you know, I think that we, even those of us who've been Christians for a long time, when we don't live from who God made us to be, there is that, that little bit of danger of a little Herod kind of starting to rise up in us, right? I mean, you know, we understand this. We, we do. We want to be in control. <laughs> we want to be the one sitting on the throne of our life. I mean, maybe we'll show up and, you know, go to church or, you know, call ourselves a Christian or we'll just kind of nod to God. Maybe we'll make a little donation here and there. If, if God will help me build my kingdom, then sure, 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 I'll... I'll play the part, but to, to actually worship God, whew, like for us to actually bow and surrender to Jesus in all areas of our life as the Lord and King of our life, having a posture like, like the Magi of worship or like Mary had her posture of just saying the answer is yes, Jesus, no matter what the question is, yes, I trust you as king. No matter what you ask, God, I'm in, I'm all in. I say yes to you. Instead of that posture, when our flesh starts to rise up and we start grasping for control, we can start to look a little bit like Herod here. 
Next, I want to summarize what we covered uh, from the passage a couple weeks ago, uh, verse 12 and 13. What happens is the Magi then, after they worship Jesus, they get warned in a dream to sneak out of the country and avoid Herod. Then an angel comes and tells Joseph to flee in the night right now, get out, take Mary, take the child Jesus, because Herod wants to kill Jesus. And so they all escape, they all go. And when Herod finds out, he throws a fit. He throws a fit because he's always been able to control outcomes. But this time, he is outwitted. We already know what happens when Herod doesn't get his way, right? We've already heard this, people pay, people die. In his pride, refusing to bow, he's an easy, he's an easy vehicle for the enemy to influence And that's when the part of the story happens where he gives orders to his soldiers to go and kill all the baby boys two years and under. And so they did. A demonically empowered, satanic evil. And again, we talked about the tragedy of that uh, three weeks ago. But after the slaughter of those babies that we did talk about, what I didn't have time for and I want to let you know about now is that what happened to Herod next, um, I think is important to know. Um, history actually records this. It's not in the scripture, but history records that, that probably within the same year that Herod did that, uh, Herod died and he died an exceedingly painful death because of this disease that he had. Um, Like I said before, it was a kidney disease, but he also had, um, and I'm going to say this delicately, um, you can Google it or don't, yeah, maybe don't, Um, he had gangrene in an area of his body that I'm not going to be specific about, so yeah, Um, that's how he suffered, suffered so badly he tried to commit suicide, and as he was trying to kill himself, his cousin walks in and, you know, saves him, but he's already done more damage to himself, and then the suffering is worse, And so Herod knows that he was going to die soon. And he also knew that nobody was going to mourn. Like, nobody's going to miss him and be sad. There'll be parties in the street when Herod dies. So he gives a command to his soldiers, go and round up the most respected, honored men in Jerusalem and put them in prison. And then his orders were, the same hour that I die, execute all of them as well so that there will be mourning on the day that I die die. I mean, this guy's one sick puppy. Um, And soon, very soon actually, Herod died, but the successors of Herod, there was sanity that prevailed, and they did not follow those execution orders, and they let everybody go. They released them. Andy Stanley just asked a great question. He said, could you imagine being the person Um, in Herod's final hours of his life, if you were trying to explain to him something, you're like, hey, Herod, guess what? I got good news and bad news. The good news is this. 2,000 plus years from now, people are still gonna be telling a story that you're a part of. In fact, all over the planet, Herod, people are gonna gather every year to celebrate the biggest holiday in the world. And they're gonna read about you, your name, as a part of the story of the greatest king in history. That's the good news. But the bad news is, in that story, you're just kind of a, a footnote. You're a foolish minor villain in the story of that baby who you missed. <laughs> that baby who became the greatest king, became the savior of the world. 
Herod, you were so proud of all that you built, but you're not going to be known as Herod the builder. You're going to be known as Herod the butcher. That's your legacy. A dishonorable villain whom no one will respect. That's your story, Herod. And that brings us to you and me. What will our story be? What will your story be? When it comes to bowing our knee to Jesus, the King of Kings, in the end, will it be said that you spent your life doing what Herod did, trying to preserve, protect, and control? As the Lord of your life with you sitting on the throne or you've put money on the throne or power on the throne of your life or was Jesus king? Will you look back and, and know, people will know that Jesus was the king, savior, and Lord of your life. Will you have that story that resists Jesus and says, I will not bow my knee to anyone? Or will you have that posture of the answer is yes, King Jesus. No matter what the question, the answer, yes. I say yes to you. Will your story be like Herod, preserve, protect, and control, clutching, grasping, trying to orchestrate all the things of your life and the things that you think might bring you joy? Or will you and I take our cue from Mary who said, yes, God, I don't understand it all, but the answer is yes, or, or the wise men who bowed their knee to worship Jesus as the king of kings. Will you spend your whole life like Herod, trying to build your kingdom instead of accepting an invitation that God gives all of us to partner in building God's kingdom? Will your story be the story of my way with me on the throne or Jesus, your way, I put you on the throne? Will it be my will be done or Jesus, your will be done, thy will be done? And if we're honest, friends, there's a struggle for us if we're gonna be honest about answering those questions. Um, and the reason that there's a struggle and tension is that there's, there's, even if we are, even if we belong to Jesus and we are being made new and God's given us a new heart, we still have that tension and struggle because we're human and those old patterns of the flesh try to rise up and push aside the new heart God has given us. And when that happens and we start to grasp and control and manage and maneuver, that's when we recognize we can start looking a little bit like Herod, can't we? And again, remember, if you committed your life to Jesus, he's given you a new heart. The truest thing about you is not those Herod-like temptations because you, you know that God's given you a new heart. Your heart is good now and you can live from that deepest, truest place. But sometimes um, those Herod-like patterns try to creep in. And what we do when we recognize those is what the Bible calls um, repenting. Confessing and repenting. Confessing simply means I name it. Wow, man, I'm doing that. I'm going to say it out loud. I'm going to stop pretending that I'm not doing that, God. I, I see where I'm doing that. We confess and then we repent. The word repent sim simply means to change direction, to go the other way from that way. We confess, we repent, and when we repent, we're following Jesus 
in the other direction. We're giving up grasping. We're giving up control. We're surrendering. We're bowing to Jesus as king. We choose his way. And so for you today, for me, who is the Lord and king of your life? Again, is it you on the throne? Money? Power? Is that on the throne of your life? Or is Jesus the savior, the king, the Lord of your life? And there's really good news, friends. Really good news, because no matter where you're at in the continuum, because all of us struggle with this, no matter where you're at, there's really good news, is that today, right now, you can make a choice. You get to choose. Right now, today, we can have the humility to be honest about where we're at. The book of James says that God opposes the proud, but gives what to the humble? Grace, some of you know that. God gives grace to the humble. And so having the humility to be honest about where we're at activates God's grace. God is drawn to us in that humility, that honesty. And so we get to choose today to continue to pretend and be full of pride and ah, I'm fine, I don't need that, or no, no, I would never do that, or I'm gonna keep that hidden, I don't want anybody to know that. that that's all on that pride end. Um, but when we are humble enough to name it before God, we get grace, amazing grace. The worship team, will you come? As we wrap up today, uh, I want to want to just speak specifically to two different groups of people. And whatever your religious or your non-religious background is, um, no matter how long you've come to Hope or how short you've been here, maybe this is your first time, maybe this is your thousandth time being here, um, two groups. First group, today, if you have never received Jesus um, completely as your king and savior in repentance and in faith, in just a moment, um, I'm going to ask you to stand and do so. And by standing, when I, when I ask you for that, um, that's a step of humility. Um, God moves toward that. Grace moves toward that. The grace of God shows up in really amazing ways toward that kind of humility. Um, and so by standing, it's your first step in following Jesus, receiving him as king and savior. Um, by standing up, that'll be the first group. And then the second group... Um, which is probably, if we're honest, many of us, um, and if first service was indication, maybe most of us, the second group, maybe you've been a Christian for a short time or a long time, but you know that there's an area in your own life right now where you recognize that you've not been living with Jesus as king. Maybe um, even the Holy Spirit has nudged you, tapped you gently, poked you, depends on how we listen, I guess. Maybe the Holy Spirit has even just kind of tapped you, whispered to you an area where right now we're not submitted to Jesus. Um, maybe it's the area of money or finances, area of sexuality, relationships, maybe it's about power or control. Maybe it's one of those things, all of those things. Maybe it's something else. Maybe there's an area in your life you recognize right now that you are not submitted to Jesus as king. And 
really, in some ways, that's all of us, if we're honest and humble enough to admit it, isn't it? Um, See, all of us, I think, who are humble and honest enough to be real, we have to admit that there are areas of our life where Jesus is not yet king, myself included. Like, I'm needing to stand on this one as well. I need to stand on this for sure. And in a moment, by standing, we, me too, we are declaring this. Jesus, you are my king. I take myself off the throne of life, and I ask you to be my king in every single area of my life. And so if that's you in either group, I'm just going to invite you um, in humility to just stand, to join me because I'm standing on this one too. Just right now, will you stand to take that first step to declare right now that Jesus, you want Jesus to be King and Lord of every area of your life, whether it's the first time saying yes to Jesus or you've been a Christian and you know and you're recognizing areas where he's inviting you to let go of some stuff, stand. I'm gonna ask you to pray out loud. I'm gonna say a line and ask you to repeat it with me as just a prayer together. Um, Let's just declare, Jesus, you are my king. Jesus, let's say it, Jesus, you are my king. I take myself off the throne of my life and I ask you to be my king. Be my king in every single area of my life. And then I'll just quietly, um, personally, before Jesus, um, in, your, uh, in your heart even, and whatever, if you know some specific areas, just confess those to Jesus quietly to yourself right now. Just ask Jesus right now, just name those areas. Jesus, will you be king over my anger or maybe it's over my finances, over my uh, sexuality, over my relationships. I make you king. Just invite him right now over those areas. God, I thank you for the grace that you release now in humility to those who have stood before you. And then I want to pray now for those of you um, who, who are saying yes to Jesus for the very first time to follow Jesus or returning to that walk with God. And I want to, actually what I want to do is I want to ask all of us to pray this out loud as a way of encouraging those that are making that decision for the first time or they're coming back to Christ, let's just, I'll pray a phrase and you repeat after me. Let's pray together this. Heavenly Father, let's all pray it together. Heavenly Father, forgive my sins. Make me new. Fill me with your spirit so I can follow Jesus. Jesus, I put you on the throne of my life. That's a hard one. Let's pray that line again. Jesus, I put you on the throne of my life. My life is not my own. I give it to you. Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen.